Good morning, y'all. That was extremely weak. Good morning, good morning, good morning. There, that was, that was strong. That was strong. Um, I'm Ed Griffin-Hagen, one of our pastors here at Church on the Trail. I want to, before we get started this morning, I want to just give you two or three little uh, housekeeping-y, update-y kind of thingies. There was a lot of ease in that. Uh, first thing I want to give you is a little update on the on where we are on the on the building and what's going on. It's been about a month since I said anything about that, and I just want to. We're still working through pushing towards building in a phased kind of way, building something just what we need, something to get us from here out there as quick as we possibly can. Well, there's some steps that have to be taken to do that, and one of them is <clears throat> getting together with the bank and seeing what they'll do, and they. Uh, had a list of, of things that we needed to get to them, and Lorna has gotten all of that stuff put together in the beginning of this coming week. I'll give that over to the bank because the contractor can't, uh, can't tell us what he can do until we can tell him what we can do for him. And so that's kind of where, in the interest of transparency, I mean, that's, that really is where we're at. Um, and so that's an update on that and more to come in the next uh, few weeks probably on that. That was number one. Number Two is we're going to take a little detour today from uh, the walk through the gospel according to Mark that we're in because I think we need to be able as a church family when circumstances may dictate when something happens in the world, in this case something happens in our community, that, uh, that we need to discuss, we need to talk about, we need to have a conversation about. Um, I mean, nobody woke up last Sunday morning and expected to go to bed last Sunday night with what happened in our own community. I mean, people in our church family, friends and family, had folks in in Beauregard that lost everything, had people they knew that died in Beauregard, you know, destruction in, in, uh, in Talbot County, you know, up in Harris County and Ellerslie and all really throughout Georgia and Alabama. Nobody got up Sunday morning expecting that to happen. And so I want to talk about that today. And I want you to know this too. Our church family, as usually is the case, by Wednesday, we had a team over in Beauregard working with Samaritan's uh, Purse. We had a team over there Thursday. We had a team over there Friday. And I'm sure any of y'all that want want to volunteer and serve alongside of them, because look, maybe you see it on TV. And maybe you see it on the news and all, but it pales in comparison to the reality of when you got boots on the ground over there. It's real pain and real suffering, and it's real pain in the storm. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today. And do y'all know Wednesday over there, our team is over there, and they're ministering. You know, obviously tree cutting and tarping roofs and hauling debris, and 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 you just can't imagine all of the people's lives just strewn like all over the place and so they're talking with this family and 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 our team is sitting there talking with this guy and if if i'm remembering what susan tells me correctly this guy one of the only houses on this street that was left they're talking to him that joker gave his life to christ right then and there in the midst of the storm god saved him yeah 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 so I want us to talk about that. Before we do, I want to pray real quick. Lord, we love you today. Lord, we love you that you are there for us. Great is your faithfulness. 
even when we seem to be and can be faithless, your faithfulness never ends. You've got your arm around us all the time. Even when we try to throw it off of us, it's around us. Lord, you love us with an unconditional love, with a love that we could never, ever imagine. Your shoulders are big and broad, and you beg us to lean on them. And so, Lord, we pray and lift up friends and family and, and people in our community that are truly suffering catastrophic loss of, of life, of their property, of where they live, of everything, everything they have gets blown away in the wind. And so, Lord, we lift them up to you. We pray that they would seek your face in the pain, that they would look towards you, that you would bring them comfort and peace and contentment we love you in Jesus' name. So look, I know on, on this side of the garden, on this side of the fall and the events in the garden, I, and there's probably a hundred things, I know there is, but I kind of know four things. Number one is this, that the world is unpredictable. It's crazy unpredictable. Always has been. Number two, that suffering is inevitable, and most of the time suffering surprises us. We don't wake up expecting to suffer. It usually is surprising. And number three, life is never safe. As safe as you want life to be, life is never safe. And number four, death is unavoidably sure. It's coming. It's it's coming. Physical death is coming on this side of the fall, on this side of sin coming into the world. Death is an inevitability. But I also know this. On this side of the cross on the good side of the cross, that one word trumps all of that, and that's hope. There's hope. On the other side of the cross, there was no hope. On this side of the cross, there, there's hope. And so what I want to talk through today is finding hope in the storm. It's kind of the title of the message, maybe on the screen. It is. Finding hope in the storm. And, you know, I had a friend of mine some years ago who is an atheist, a good friend of mine, who asked me a, a, a question, and maybe a tough question, because here's what I also know. I'm going to guess that everyone in this room, at some point or the other, and maybe last Sunday, I don't know, but definitely at some point in your life, something has happened to you, something's happened to your, your mama, your daddy, your kid, your wife, your husband, something's happened to somebody you know, a friend, catastrophic, some tragedy, and you question why. I mean, I would imagine there are people last Sunday night questioned why. No doubt about it. I mean, how can you want to say in the world we live, how can you not, how can that not ever happen? So I am sure that that happened and happens to, to all of us. And so this friend of mine, he, he asked me this question. He says, why has God made it so hard for, for us to believe in him? Why has he made it so hard for us to see him? Why, if I love somebody like you, like you say he loves us, I'd make it easy to, to see him. I'd make, he, he'd just make himself obvious to me. And, and he's not making himself obvious. And why is it so hard to, to see him? If he's for real, if he's for real like you say he is, why is he so hard to find? Why does he hide himself? If he's so good like you say he is, what am I supposed to do? Here's a question. What am I supposed to do with all the bad stuff that happens in the world? Y'all, that's a for real question. That's a question people ask, real people, your friends, maybe your husband, maybe your wife, maybe your child. 
I don't know. That's a real question. And when, I, when we're done today in 30, 40 minutes, I hope that we can, we can begin at least to have some kind of an answer for, for my friend or for your husband or wife, some kind of an answer to that question even in the middle of the fire, even in the middle when the winds are just raging around us, that we can even have some sort of an answer. Things like what happened last Sunday, the loss of life, the destruction. Oh, my goodness, it can just make you question everything because, y'all, life can just turn on a dime. It can change. It can just change on a dime. When, <coughs> excuse me, when, when, when you feel like you're in a place where you never, ever expected to be. You found yourself in a place where you never dreamed in a bajillion years that you would ever end up in that place. How do you respond? What do you do? What do you say? Who do you talk to? Like, like what do you just really, what do you do? And I want to begin this, I want to look at a, a verse in, in Jeremiah, the book, of, the book of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is an Old Testament prophet. Um, that book is sandwiched between Isaiah and Lamentations in the Old Testament. We're going to have the, these verses up on the screen. We're going to look at the, through three or four, but this first one is, uh, is in Jeremiah, and Jeremiah is going to actually going to be in, in uh, chapter 29. But Israel, with Jeremiah's prophesying, Israel had turned her back on the Lord, and she's following false prophets. And I want to set the stage a little bit. Jeremiah uh, preached for about 40 years, beginning around 600 B.C. And so context-wise, this is 586 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar. Y'all say that with me. One, two, three. Nebuchadnezzar. That was good. We're in seminary now. But Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. Babylon is kind of where Iraq is uh, now. And Nebuchadnezzar invades Israel. He invades Jerusalem. He destroys all, he just destroys Jerusalem. He captures it. He destroys the, the temple and the temple complex. He kills a bunch of Jews and he takes thousands of them captive. And Jeremiah 29 is set against the backdrop of that, of that event happening. Against the backdrop of an 800 mile forced march for those that he took captive to Babylon. Probably took months for them to walk uh, 800 miles. And so these folks are in Babylon. These captives are in Babylon. They're constantly trying to figure out how to, how to get out. And their whole life, y'all, had revolved around uh, the temple, the holy city and the temple, and the temple worship. Everything they knew revolved around that. And they're up there, and they're thinking, how can we go on? How do we get up tomorrow morning? We're supposed to worship in the temple. How are we going to get up tomorrow morning, put one foot in front of the other, and do this when we're 800 miles from there? And so they're there, and they're trying to figure out how to get out, and they're trying to figure out how to escape. And they've got these false prophets, the Bible calls them false prophets, that are telling them you're only going to be here for a short amount of time. This storm's going to be over just like that. That's what the false prophets are saying. And Jeremiah even warns them in chapter 29, against being deceived by these false prophets. And this, this chapter begins, really the whole chapter is a letter. It's a letter from Jeremiah to the exiles in Babylon. It tells us this in verse 1. It says, This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem 
to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Jeremiah had the heart of a shepherd, totally had a pastor's heart. And and in this letter, God spoke through him to encourage them. Truth is, that's what being a shepherd of a flock of believers is, is to try to discern and speak what God would have. That's my challenge every week, is to try to discern what God would have me to say. And I wish that he just spoke it in my ear, you know, every week. Uh, it just If you all think that's the way it works, it don't work that way. But it's to try to discern what his will is and what he would have for us to say and talk about that would be encouraging, that would be edifying, that would lead people to the Lord, that would take people who already know the Lord and help them to grow and to be encouraged. And so that's Jeremiah. And he's trying, he writes them a letter and he's trying to encourage them how they ought to live while they're in Babylon. And he tells them, you ain't going to be here for a little bit of time. You're going to be here 70 years. And he tells them, you need to set up shop and you need to have children and you need to have grandchildren and you need to get jobs and you need to settle down. You need to plant crops and you need to live in this storm. You need to live as normal a life as you can possibly live and don't listen to those false prophets. And, and here's why he tells them that. Verse 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. That's a really popular verse. Every one of y'all knows that verse. I bet half of you got pictures on the wall of your house, got that verse written on there. Here's what it, a, a, a little more of a literal translation of that verse is this, For I know... The Lord says, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you, the thoughts that I'm thinking towards you. He says, I know those thoughts, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace. Not prosperity is a terrible translation of the word there. It's peace. I know the thoughts I have for you. It's thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. That's really a lit, more literal translation of that. And, and here's what God is saying there. He says, I'm the one that knows. He said, you don't know. He said, I'm the one that knows. It's an intimate knowledge. It's the kind of knowledge that is in the sense that God's already experienced the end. He's not bound by time, y'all. He's already experienced your future. He's already seen His plans play out in your life. You haven't. And He's telling you, I've... I'm thinking thoughts for you of peace and of contentment. These guys that were hearing this, they couldn't grasp that kind of knowledge. And guess what? None of us can either. And the Hebrew word that's usually translated plans, in this verse it's translated plans, it literally means thoughts or intentions or the intent of someone greater than the person who's being spoken to. So what are the thoughts or the plans that God's revealing? What's His desire? His desire here and always is for peace, for you to have peace. He has plans for peace. The Hebrew word is shalom. It's translated prosperity in, this, in most translations. It's a terrible translation. It's into English because it makes people take and misapply that verse and, and, and make you believe that God's plan is for you to be rich that God's plan is for you to have material wealth. For I know the plans I have for you, thoughts to make you rich. It's not what that verse says. 
Shalom is peace. It's contentment. It's security. It's soundness. It's completeness. That is what His desire is for us. He doesn't have plans or thoughts for you for distress or for evil or calamity or catastrophe. No. And so why is He telling them this? Why is He telling them that He knows the thoughts that He's been thinking towards them and me and you? Why does He say this? That His thoughts aren't for harm. They're not for evil. They're for peace. What's the point of that kind of knowledge that He has? And I think that His point is twofold. I think He has two things Two things in mind. Number one is a future. And that word future, it's a final result in the sense of, of a time that's yet to come, although he's seen it already play out. He's, you haven't and I haven't, but he has. Sometimes it's even translated reward because we are rewarded down at the end. In case you don't know, we win. When it's all said and done, y'all, we win. So number one, it's this future. Number two is this. It's the Hebrew word tikva. Tikva is hope. It's an expectation. It's an optimistic outlook. It's a, a general. Um, it's a general feeling that some desire is going to get fulfilled. And so, if you put your mind, put your mind in the mind of a Jew, 2,700 years ago, who is stripped of everything they have, their whole world is just turned upside down. Everything is stripped away from them. They're being held captive, virtually might as well be on another planet in Babylon. And these words of the prophet Jeremiah come to them in, in this letter. And, and here's, here's, what I th- here's what I think they heard. They get this letter and I think they heard this. Guys, this is what I think they heard from God. Guys, I know this is brutal. I know you're 800 miles from home. I know your house just got torn down. I know your house just burned. I know the winds of Nebuchadnezzar just ripped through Jerusalem, and I know it's brutal. But I know the plans I have for you. I know what I'm thinking about you. I know the thoughts that I have for you. I know the desires I have for you. Trust me. That's what he says. Trust me. Only me. Keep your eyes focused on me. Lean on me. I know my plans are to bring you completeness. My plans are to bring you peace. My plans are to bring you security. Trust me. This is what he's telling those exiles. And he says they're not plans to have you devoured by some some pagan worshiping king. He says, trust me, guys, I've got your back. He says, I love you more than you could ever imagine in a million years. That's what this verse meant to those people 2,700 years ago when their homes were just destroyed and Jerusalem was ransacked. And I think that this is a principle for us. Sitting in this room, I think this is a, a timeless kind of principle for us. The word hope is used 200 or more times in the Bible. And, and I think if something's used, if a word's used 200 times in the Bible, I think it's an important word. I want to look three or four other places that it's used. Let's look what the Scripture says compare this passage about hope and a future and peace to kind of the rest of Scripture. Lamentations. Chapter 3 says, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. And when he says, think about This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. So he's going to tell us what he's calling to mind that is giving him hope. Alright, that's the structure of the sentence. So the this that he's calling to mind is this. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. 
The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. That doesn't mean it ceases on Saturdays. It means it never ceases. And therefore I have hope. His mercies never come to an end. And therefore I have hope. They're new every morning. And therefore I have hope. That is what the writer of Lamentation says. In Romans 8 says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. He says, All things work together for the good for those who love Him. It's another verse that gets radically misinterpreted, misquoted, because there's not a period after the word good. It doesn't say, and we know that all in all things God works for the good, period. It doesn't say that. This is a promise to believers. Y'all, it's a promise to believers only. It says, for those who love Him. He's going to take every event in our lives, and He puts them in a bucket, and He stirs them up, and He does something good with it. Sometimes we are privileged enough to see the good that he does with it. But you know what? We live in a broken, sinful, fallen world. Sometimes we don't get to see the good. It's a privilege and an honor when we do get to see the good. Think about the guy who woke up lost last week on Wednesday and our volunteers are sitting there talking to him. He gets saved. And, and, and he had no idea. God takes everything for those that love him and works it for the good. There's hope in that. First Peter chapter 1 says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He's given us new birth into a living hope. When we are born again, we're born into hope. Into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Romans 15 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. And what does it say next? fill you with all joy and peace as what? As you trust in Him so that you may overflow with the hope. You've got to trust in Him. These are promises to believers. So that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Look, man, the Bible so clearly paints a picture of a God that we worship who says, I'm for you, who says, I'm with you, who says, come here and let me put my arm around you and love on you while you're hurting. That's the God. He says, I only want the best for you. So first big principle today is this. God's desire is to give all people in all places at all time peace and contentment and hope in a future. That's a principle that is timeless and applies to believers of all time. Despite circumstances, circumstances come and go. Pain comes and goes. Tornado, hurricanes, tsunamis, earthquakes, cancer, stroke, heart attack, whatever it is, whatever it is, it is peace in that storm, and that is what He wants for us. Amen. I want to, amen is right. Amen is right, y'all. I mean, it is in the middle of that where He loves on us the most. I want to tell you a story, and I want you to try to notice the multiple little God moments moving and shaking in this story. And y'all, when everybody probably is the same. When you are in the fire, you don't ever notice the God moments. Typically. A month when it's over, two months, three months, four months later, and you're looking back in hindsight, you can see, oh my gosh, God did this. He did that. He shucked and jived and He moved this over here and that over there and He had this person say this or that to me. And I want you to try to notice those in the story. I want to tell you a story. January 2017, I'm at the doctor with my mom. 
for her to have a checkup. We go to the same doctor. This guy I went to high school with, his name's Phil. We're the doctor. He looks at me and he says, man, you have not been here in five years. You need to have, he said, Monday morning, you're having blood work done. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. And he says, no, Monday morning, you're having blood work done. So I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll come in Monday morning and get my blood work, which I did. And on Friday of that week, he calls me and says, bro, you need to call your urologist to make an appointment because your PSA level is at 10.66. That's your prostate serum antigen. It's a measure of your prostate serum antigen. Isn't it funny the way it works that way? <laughs> I was trying to tell you what it's a measure of. Um, how funny is that? 10.66, you know what it should be? About 2. He says, you need to go see your urologist. So I call up, make an appointment with uh, my urologist. His name's Todd Gerald. Super great guy. And Susan and I go and we meet with him to get a physical exam of the prostate. But before he did it, he said, no matter what this finds, whatever, no matter what I find with a physical exam, we're doing a biopsy next week. I said, okay, whatever. So he does the physical exam. 100% normal, no enlargement, no irregularities. Perfect. So I'm thinking, this is cool. This is cool. Probably everything is fine. But he said, we're still doing the biopsy because I said we were going to do it because of the numbers. And so on February 24, 2017, 12 needle core samples. That's not a pleasant thing. But 12 needle core samples and then two weeks later, on March the 6th, here's the words that come out of his mouth. The words that came out of his mouth were the biopsies positive. Three of the samples showed cancer. Let those words, let those words come out of a doctor's mouth um, when they're aimed towards you. It's a weird, it's a weird thing to, to, to hear. And, and I, I, look, 17 years ago, I, I swear... 17 years ago, I thought if, some, if those words ever, I remember thinking about this. If those words ever came out of a doctor's mouth, I'd go find a bridge and jump off of it. I just remember thinking that 17 years ago. But 17 years ago, I was not a Christian. 17 years ago, hope didn't live inside of me. 17 years ago, peace didn't live inside of me. 17 years ago, security didn't live inside of me because the Holy Spirit didn't live inside of me. Y'all, he changes everything. He just changes everything, and that includes a cancer diagnosis. Y'all, that includes a tornado. That includes a hurricane, a tsunami, a heart attack, a stroke, whatever it is. He changes it all. So two years ago when I heard those words come out of his mouth, Susan and I both immediately felt peace. It was the craziest thing. I have spoken those words before. I've preached those words before. I had never lived those words before. And that peace that surpasses understanding, it totally does. I couldn't even believe the the warmth and overwhelming sense of peace. And she had it too. And she's the one that has been the biggest warrior in our whole marriage of 31 years. And she had immediately had peace as well. And it was like God was whispering in our ears, trust me, dude, I got it. I got it. Just trust me. Hang with me. Lean on me. Trust me. For I know the thoughts I have for you. It's like he was whispering that in our ears. And immediately these three verses, these three passages almost just kind of were impressed in my brain. Number one was the one we just looked at, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. Number two uh, verse that pops in my head is Philippians chapter 4. Verses 6 and 7, it says, Do not be anxious about anything. Do not worry about anything. And what does that say? It doesn't say pick and choose 50% of the things to worry about. It says don't worry about anything. 
He says, but in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Hit your knees is what that says and pray. And if you do that, if you do that, if you don't worry and you give it over to the Lord, what is, what's the promise? Verse 7, and the peace, is the promise that you won't get cancer? No. Is the promise even that he will heal the cancer? No, it is not. Is the promise that the tornado is not going to hit your house? Absolutely it is not. Is the promise you'll never have a heart attack or a stroke? It's not. The promise is this, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And I knew right off the bat that his plans and his thoughts for me were for me to have peace and contentment. The very thoughts of God at that moment in time was to give me hope and encouragement and Susan hope and encouragement for a future. He promises his peace is going to guard my heart and it's going to guard my mind. Those are the two avenues of emotion. And so here's another takeaway. God's peace will, this is a promise, y'all, God's peace will guard the hearts and minds of believers. It will. It will guard us in the fire. The third passage was in Daniel chapter 3, which seems maybe a little odd, but it's in Daniel chapter 3. And this is a passage about um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they're three guys, and the king is about to throw them in a fire. What king you think is about to throw them in the fire? King Nebuchadnezzar. And it's verse 17 says, If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. They're talking to him. The God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. Your majesty is his Nebuchadnezzar. But even if he doesn't, it's the kicker right there, but even if he doesn't, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. So these men wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace and then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and he asked his guys, he asked his advisors, wasn't there three men we tied up and threw in that fire? And they replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. Why did they come out of the fire? Because there was a fourth dude in there, y'all. It says they came out of the fire and the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no, no, no smell of... They didn't, they didn't even smell like fire. And that fire burned up the guards who set it. That's how hot that furnace was. And I knew at that moment there was a fourth guy in the fire with me and Susan. I knew just as sure as I'm standing here today that the God I serve was able to deliver me from that cancer, but even if he didn't, it was okay because I knew with one billion percent confidence where I would be if it was time for me to go home. Either way, whatever happened in that circumstance independent that Jesus was alongside she and I the whole time. And that's, look, that's, that's another little principle. Jesus is always alongside of believers in the heat of the fire. Always. He is always alongside of us. These three passages, written to different audiences at different times for different reasons, they all convey truths to us that are just as applicable to you sitting out there because every one of y'all are going through a storm. I don't know what it is. 
And it may have just been a cancer diagnosis. I don't know. It may have just been a heart attack. It may have, you're, you have family that, that, that were in Beauregard or Talbot County. I don't know what it is. But that, that, that truth is just as applicable to us today in whatever storm we're in as it was to Christians in the third century being burned at the stake in the Roman Empire. So now my doctor says we need to have a CAT scan to see if this thing had spread. The diagnostic center we were going to was booked out three weeks. If you've ever had a cancer diagnosis, three weeks is like 300 years because the thing's growing. You're thinking it's growing this big every day, and I'm like, I want this thing out of me. I don't want to wait three weeks. Fifteen minutes from me making that phone call, I'm talking to a friend of mine who says an admin that, he, that works for him, husband, is a radiologist, and he would call and see what they can do. Ten o'clock that night, that night at ten o'clock, a doctor, Dr. Lewis, who I don't even know, I'd never met him, he calls up, and they're booked three weeks out. He says, can you be here at eight o'clock tomorrow morning, we'll get the CT done, and you don't have to wait for results. You and Susan can just come in my office, we'll go over them right then. So we did. And the results were, listen, that's, God moved there in about 10 hours. Bam, and it was done. And cancer hadn't spread to liver, kidneys, lungs, or any of that stuff. At least that's what the CT showed. Now we say, what do we do now? So my urologist uh, told me, we go back and we see him. He said, based on my numbers from the CT scan, from the, the biopsies and all that stuff, he says, based on your numbers and your young age, which was very cool to hear, your young age, he says we had options, and he explained the options, and, and he said they'd probably boil down to some kind of radiation or to have surgery to remove it. And he said, if you're going to do radiation, I want you to go into a place called Radiography Centers of Georgia in Atlanta. He said, uh, he said they had the highest cure rate of prostate cancer in the world. They have this huge database, 30,000 cancers, prostate cancers they have treated. And he said, if you're going to do surgery, I want you going to Scott Tully in Birmingham at St. Vincent's Hospital in Birmingham because he's one of the best. In the, he is one of the best in the country at this surgery, and he's done a ton of them. And I said, well, Todd, do you do the surgery too? Well, I trust you. I know you. He says, yeah, he's better than me. Anybody ever had a surgeon tell you that another surgeon was better than him? A selfless, how selfless is that? So, uh, we did it, Susan and I, we did a ton of research trying to figure out, you know, what we do because those are major kind of decisions. And I talked to, I don't know, seven or eight friends of mine that people in different parts of the country that had gone through this and, and virtually all of them had gone to RCOG in Atlanta and, and done this radiation thing. And we were talking to one of my buddies uh, that had been treated there. He said that Dr. Merlin... M-E-R-L-I-N, Dr. Merlin, great doctor. He said he's a great doctor at RCOG, took good care of us. And three or four other guys that I knew had said the same thing about the same doctor at, at this place in Atlanta, Dr. Merlin. And, and I thought, I said, George, you got a picture of Dr. Merlin on your phone? And he opened up his phone and he linked in or Facebook or something. He shows me a picture of Dr. Merlin. Well, I knew Dr. Merlin is magic because he was a fraternity brother of mine 35 years ago. At Georgia, we called him Magic Merlin. And, and so I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, if you only knew that doctor 35 years ago, you know. But I hadn't seen the dude, hadn't talked to him in literally in over 30 years. And I'm thinking, God is pointing us clearly to go to this place and do their radiation protocol. 
And so we, by the time we get up to that appointment to talk to him, we, I'd already decided we're doing it before we even talked to him, uh, t- before we talked to Magic. And uh, we got up there. He sat down with us for two hours and talked to us about this and that and the pros and the cons. He plugs all my numbers in their little computer, and he says, based on your cancer, there's an 81.8% chance that you'll be around in 15 years. I said, okay, that, those numbers, I don't know. I never had this before. I thought that sounded pretty good. We're done talking, though. He says to me and Susan, have you talked to a surgeon yet? And I said, no, we decided we're going to do, we're going to let you treat us, you know. And, you know, it's $54,000 was that cancer treatment there. I said, no, we're going to let you do it. He said, you need to talk to a surgeon. And I said, but we've already decided, Magic. His nurses cracked up every time we called him Magic. But I said, we've already decided. He said, you need to talk to a surgeon. You need to explore all your options before you decide. And I said, well, we've kind of already decided. He said, I will not treat you until you talk to a surgeon. Another selfless doctor, because he ain't no surgeon. He's a radial oncologist, I guess you call him. So we leave. We're on the way back home to Columbus. And I said, we're going to do what he said and talk to a surgeon. I said, baby, but I'm going up there and having their radiation protocol. So we go and we over to Birmingham. We talked to, to Scott Tully, who did the first laparoscopic robotic radical prostatectomy in Alabama and has done 4,500 of those since then. And his numbers, he plugs all my numbers in there, and he says you got 85 to 90% chance of being here 35-plus years from now. Now we're leaning towards surgery because those numbers are a little better, but I wanted to go talk to my urologist, and I said, Todd, what would you do if I was your brother? He said, I'd do you one better. If I were you, Scott Tully in Birmingham would be operating on me, so that we made the decision. And on uh, May 15th, two years ago, 2017, had a laparoscopic robotic radical prostatectomy. And the initial reports were that it was good, that the, can- that the margins, they call them, the margins were clear. And it looked like the cancer had not spread, but you don't know for sure because they got to send it off and have it analyzed by the analyzer people. And they tell you what the pathology is on it. Two weeks later, we go back to have our post-op thing, uh, get the final pathology report, and it, ha- and it had not spread, but it, there was a whole lot more cancer there than what everything else had shown, but it hadn't spread. And Todd said to me, there's a 95-plus percent chance you'll be here 40 or 50 years from now, and barring you getting run over by a bus, something else is going to get you. This cancer is not going to get you. Here's another little tidbit. Susan and I didn't have health insurance at the time because the price on our health insurance had gone up to $1,700 a month. Who can afford $1,700 a month? She and I can't. And so we didn't have health insurance. Two weeks before, two weeks before I had the blood test, we got Samaritan Ministries health sharing. Two weeks before now, I'm going to come back to that in a second, and I want you all to see how God's weaving and chucking and jiving and doing things in all of this and how his plans for peace and hope in the future unfolded in this succession of moments for us. It is not normal protocol for him to do a biopsy when the physical exam was 100% normal. But guess what? That's what my doctor did. It's never been normal, I'm not, I'm not, and I'm not throwing my wife under the bus, but it's never been normal for her not to worry about stuff. And I am telling you, the second the words came out of his mouth, She had total peace. That was way outside of our experience. 
It's not normal for a doctor that you don't know to call you at 10 o'clock at night and tell you he can get you in uh, 10 hours later when they're booked three weeks out. But Dr. Lewis did. I don't think it's normal for a surgeon to refer you to another surgeon that does the same surgery that he does. But my doctor did. I don't think it's normal uh, for people that you don't know and people that you do know to direct you to uh, a center in Atlanta that is led by your fraternity brother named Magic who pushes you away to go talk to a surgeon. That just, y'all, that stuff tends not to happen. It just tends not to happen. And oh, by the way, if we'd have had, still had the insurance we have for 25 years, none of those places would have been covered. We wouldn't have been in any of them. The place that did the CT scan wouldn't have been covered. The place in Atlanta wouldn't have been covered. None of the, Dr. Tully in Birmingham, none of that would have been covered. But with Samaritans, you go wherever you want, and it's all, it's all taken care of. And so here's the question I, wanna, I, want, I want to ask you, and I want to give you three sort of <clears throat> charges, I guess. The question is, how can I see and, be, and discern and, and understand the thoughts that God is thinking about me, the plans that he has, particularly in the middle of a horrific fire? Number one is this, allow God to make your heart tender. Today, today, you don't know what happens tomorrow, man. You don't know what's going to happen when you go out there. You don't know what's going to happen when you go to the doctor Monday. Allow God to make your heart tender today. Responding right and appropriately to the hurts and the disappointments are going to make you sensitive to the way God moves in your life if your heart is tender. Y'all, He uses our hurts and He uses our disappointments and He uses our pain to shape us and to mold us into who He wants us to be. The hurts we live through are what, what help to shape us. There's just no way around that. At the end of our lives, every one of us, one of two or three things is going to happen. Your heart is either going to have become hard or your heart is going to have been crushed by the disappointments and pain of life or your heart is going to be made tender by the very same thing that makes God's heart tender. There's no other, nothing else can happen to your heart other than those three things. So number one, make your heart tender. Allow God to make your heart tender today. And number two, make your mind strong through faith through belief, today. Do it today because we don't know what tomorrow brings. Learn to trust and believe in God and trust that His plans are better than yours. Trust and surrender the control to His providence and His purposes. If you don't do that, then you're going to struggle for the rest of your life with two things. Hopelessness and purposelessness. That is what people struggle with. Why am I here? I have no hope. Surrender that to God and you will have hope and you will have purpose. Number two, number three is this, and this is maybe the most important, is to see the world through the lens of Jesus Christ's sacrifice. See the world through the lens of His sacrifice. Today, y'all do that Today, fix your tender heart and focus your, your, your faithful mind on the cross. And if you do that, you'll, you'll at least begin to see the world according to God's pattern and according to God's plans. You have got to see the world 
the, the world of pain through the one that was exiled, through the pain of that cross, through the love that was displayed on that cross. Think about this. The exile we talked about a little while ago in Babylon that, that pointed towards Jesus' homelessness. That culminated, His homelessness culminated in that cross. It culminated in what happened. He was the ultimate exile. And His ultimate exile fulfilled the righteousness of the Lord. He shows us through His love that has played, played itself out on that cross that He bridges this distance between Him and us. That's how God enables us to see the world through, through Calvary. If you don't see it that way, you'll never see it. You'll, you'll never understand the masterpiece that God is trying to weave in your life. But once you take those steps, allowing God to make your heart tender, making your mind strong through faith, and looking at the world through the lens of the cross, you can begin to see that pattern. 2,700 years ago, the Lord said, For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, plans to give you peace and contentment and hope and a future. Here's what Susan and I heard from the Lord every day during that season of life. And this is my encouragement to anybody, whether in any kind of storm. This is what he says. He says, guys, I know it's brutal. He says, Allison, I know it's brutal. I do. But he says, I love you, and I know the thoughts that I think towards you. I know the peace that I have in mind for you. I know the hope I have in mind for you. And most importantly, he says, I know the future that I have in mind for you. That future is not for you to be devoured. The future is not for you to be to, to, to enter into ca ca catastrophe. He says, I love you more than you could ever imagine. And I, my greatest desire is to give you peace and contentment. But y'all, there, where there's no Holy Spirit, there is no hope. Hope does not live where salvation is absent. Do y'all get that? Hope does not live in the absence of salvation. Hope is what separates a believer from an unbeliever. How do you go to bed at night when your 10-year-old daughter just died in a tornado? How do you go to bed and wake up the next morning, put one foot in front of the other, lost? I don't know how you do it. How do you get a cancer diagnosis as an unbeliever? How do you... I asked my mom 10 years ago, 15 years ago, what do you think is going to happen when you die? She says, I don't care, I'll be dead. That is hopeless because it's not, I don't care, I'll be dead. There's something beyond that. You will live somewhere. How do you go through any of the struggles and the, and the, the, the catastrophes in life, the tragedies in life? How do you do that without the hope of Christ? I have no idea. I have no idea. How do you, y'all, I don't know if y'all saw that lady on the news Monday and Tuesday who lost her 10-year-old daughter. 10 years old, sweet little girl. How do you do that without the hope that Christ brings? So I'm telling you right now, man, allow Him to make your heart tender. Make your mind strong through faith and view it all through the lens of the cross and do those three things today, not tomorrow. You may be dead tomorrow. Do it today, and you will change futures. Y'all, you'll just change. You'll change your future. You may change your grandchild's future. 
You may change your great-grandchild's future. I don't know. You may change the future of, the, of, the, of another guy over in Beauregard that you got your arm around talking to about what God did for you. But do it today. And let us know on that connection card if you do it because we want to pray with you and we want to pray for you. And we've got a prayer little corner back there. If that happened to you today, let us know on that connection card and go talk to somebody. Talk to somebody. Even if you don't go back there, talk to somebody. We want to love on you. We want to talk with you. We want to pray with you. Let me pray for us. Lord, we love you today. We love you because you loved us first. Lord, my prayer is that hearts will have been made tender today. You are the tenderizer. Lord, you're the one that does that. And Lord, we thank you so much for that. We thank you for the salvation that only you bring. And Lord, let us just understand again where salvation is absent, hope doesn't live. And so my, my prayer every day for this body of believers is that we would wake up with hope every day and the hope that's found in you and what you did on that cross. So, Lord, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.